Galatians chapter 4. As you find the passage, um, I have a question for you. <laughs> Christmas is what? Christmas is what? How would you finish that sentence? Christmas is, it would be an interesting thought experiment, I guess, to ask each of you individually to finish that sentence. What comes to mind when you think of Christmas is, where is the first place to which your mind goes to finish that sentence? Does it go to a cultural tradition, perhaps? Does it go to family first? Does your mind go to certain songs or places that are traditional for you during this Christmas time? Christmas is what? Are you maybe more biblically minded, perhaps, and your thoughts immediately go to a passage of Scripture or a narrative? Christmas is maybe the story of Mary and Joseph or the shepherds or the manger. Or maybe when you think of the sentence Christmas is, you are more theologically minded. Christmas is salvation. Uh, Christmas is hope. I guess the possibilities are almost endless as to how we could finish that sentence, Christmas is. There are so many places to choose from, both biblically, theologically, and even culturally or traditionally. So beginning today and for the next three Sundays, we will think about this one sentence, Christmas is. And my purpose is not to change how you would normally think of Christmas or even to challenge it. My purpose is simply for us to come together as a family and complete that sentence, Christmas is, using the Apostle Paul as our guide. To that end, our anchor passage for it all, this entire month, will be what also turned out to be our memory verse for December, namely Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is, was not planned, by the way. We did not plan on this, on making uh, this our memory verse for the month of December. It just happened. And so we will not only memorize it, but meditate on it for four Sundays in a row. Behold God's good providence. So let us read it. Galatians chapter 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What a passage this is. Certainly a perfect guide for our quest as we think together on Christmas is what. So where do we begin? Christmas is a broad a topic as we could imagine. But this is precisely what I love about our passage for this month in Galatians chapter 4. In verses 4 and 5, Paul takes this massive subject that we call Christmas and he compresses it down to its very core. These two verses that we just read are in this sense like a tent, like a tent when you go camping. A tent can be massively big but you can take the entire structure and reduce all of it to a small bag that you can carry with you. But even though the bag is small, it can be very, very heavy. 
That's how I think of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It is small enough to carry with you in your memory, but heavy at the same time because it contains some of the deepest truths known to men. A child could easily memorize these two verses, and yet it could provide a biblical scholar with years of wonder and amazement. Like a tent inside its own bag, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 can seem small, but once you start unpacking it, it reveals a massive structure. A structure so big, in fact, that Christians have found comfort and joy and hope and strength inside this tent for millennia. So I ask again, where do we begin our quest to finish the sentence, Christmas is? Let us begin where Paul begins in verse 4. I have put it like this in the sermon title. Christmas is history's climax. History's climax. But when the fullness of time had come. One of the main truths that we learn from Christmas or the Christmas event is that human history should be understood in a certain way. Our view of history as Christians matters. So what is history? What is history? There are essentially two major proposals as to what history is and how it should be understood. One of these, option A in your notes, is that history should be understood as an endless cycle of meaningless repetition. This, we could say, is the pagan view. Uh, an endless cycle of meaningless repetition. This, once again, we could say is the pagan view. At the heart of this understanding of human history is the idea that all of existence is moving in terms of cycles, repetitions, with no purpose. According to Christian philosopher uh, Ronald Nash, quote, almost all the great civilizations existing before the beginning of the Christian era ascribed a cyclical pattern to history, end quote. The famous uh, Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote, quote, for indeed, time itself seems to be a sort of cycle, end quote. The Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus wrote that, quote, not only the seasons, but everything else, social history included, moves in, can you guess the word? Cycles, end quote. Even the Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius expressed the idea that, quote, future generations will have nothing new to witness, even as our forefathers beheld nothing more than we do today, for that, but that if a man comes to his 40th year, I don't know why 40, but 40th year, and has any understanding at all, he has virtually seen all possible happenings, both past and future, end quote. This is a very sad view of history, is it not? There hasn't been, nor will there be anything new ever. No expectation, no anticipation, no looking forward of any kind. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul had reason to disagree with the ancient 
thinkers. He understood human history very differently. He spoke of, in our passage, he spoke of the fullness of time. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound cyclical to me. It sounds more like a line moving both forward and upward. And this, my friends, is the Christian view of human history. Option B. We could call it a continuous line of meaningful purpose. A continuous line of meaningful purpose. That is the Christian view of history. Even when life does seem repetitious and somewhat cyclical, it is never meaningless or static. It always has a direction. In fact, we could say that God created the world with an embedded sense of anticipation and expectation. And the way in which he did this was by giving us the gift of, can anybody guess? The gift of? T. I am, you guessed it, very good, very well done. Time, the gift of time, our entire existence is within the confines of time. And not just time, but time that is always passing, is always passing. In that sense, we are always anticipating the next event, the next stage. We're always moving forward. Even when it looks and feels repetitious. Time demands it. It is the inescapable truth. And certain times in life are of greater consequence than others. Births, weddings, and funerals are always just around the corner. Marking out the most notable faces of life. Setting the trajectory not only for ourselves but for the people around us. And in between those big markers of time, such as births and weddings and funerals, you have the lesser but still important time markers, such as graduations and promotions and new jobs and relocations and kids going off to college. All these things create expectation in us and looking forward, sometimes in happy anticipation, sometimes in dread. But this is life. In other words... Whether we are aware of it or not, our existence is from one climax to the next. Some small, some rather big. But the point is this. Our individual lives, our individual lives, going from one climax to the next, are simply microcosms. Microcosms. Small representatives. Miniature versions of something much, much greater. Moving toward a climax is also true of the history of the world, all of it. Human history is not an empty, vain, aimless, pointless cycle of endless repetition, as some of the ancient people believed and some maybe still do today. History, human history, is moving to a climax. Human history is always happening upon the conveyor belt of anticipation. And what happened that night in Bethlehem? involving a young teenager named Mary, a plexed husband named Joseph, curious shepherds from the east, singing angels from on high, a cold manger, and of course a baby named Jesus was the first true climax of human history. Or in Paul's language, the first Christmas took place in 
the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. It is imperative that we see history with all its developments, with all its ups and downs, with all its highs and lows as something reaching for a glorious end. The first Christmas was the beginning of that climax. There is more yet to come, but on that humble night, which went almost unnoticed by those living in the vicinity, something truly remarkable took place. So remarkable that human history was shaken to its core. Human history was shaken to its core that night. Nothing remained the same. Let us meditate then on that little yet weighty expression, the fullness of time. What stands behind it? What do we make of it? Can we learn anything from it? Yes, much indeed. I'll break it down into five parts. And here's the first one. The fullness of time speaks first of Jewish expectation. Jewish expectations. The Jews of all people understood the expression, the fullness of time. Why did they? They did because the Jews were always an expectant people, knowing something big was coming. Even back in Genesis chapter 3, the expectation was set in place when God himself announced to Eve that just like Satan had brought sin into the world, one of her descendants would bring what? Life and destroy the works of the devil. So for the Jews, it was always all about future expectation, looking forward. History is certainly, for the Jew, not a cycle, but clearly a line. A line. Now, we'll get more into those details in the weeks to come. But expectation was always at the heart of the Jewish life. Even their own sacred scriptures reveal this beyond a shadow of doubt. This was well summarized by one Bible scholar who, about 10 years ago, wrote the following words about the Jews. He said this, For the Jews, quote, The Bible, the Old Testament, was not merely a source of types, shadows, allusions, echoes, symbols, examples, role models, and other no-doubt important things. It was all of those, but it was much, much more. It presented itself as a single, complex, but essentially coherent narrative. A narrative still in search of an ending. A narrative in search of an ending. End quote. I want you to notice those last words. The Old Testament for the Jewish mindset was a narrative always in search of an ending. In other words, the Old Testament is about looking forward. Or more precisely, we could say it this way, the Hebrew Scriptures are about searching for a historical climax which was going to come in the Messiah. In the Messiah. The Old Testament, in that sense, is an incomplete story, and this was by design. The Old Testament was never meant to be a self-referential, self-contained unit, but a unit pointing to the future, dependent on something yet to come. The Old Testament functions within a never-ending tension that pulls you into the long-awaited future, a future in which God would finally act to bring his original promise to Abraham, the promise that included not only Israel's redemption, 
but the redemption of the whole world. And this, by the way, is the reason why Jesus can say that the entire Old Testament was about him. When he said that the entire Old Testament was about himself, Jesus wasn't thinking about one chapter and one verse. He was thinking about the entire narrative. All of Israel's history, with its ups and downs, its highs and lows, was moving toward this one moment, the fullness of time. The Jews of the Old Testament times, and even during the time of Jesus and Paul, knew that human history was missing something. They knew that the fall in the Garden of Eden was not the final word. For those who were paying attention... Time had not been trapped in a cycle of sin, but it was awaiting liberation. In a sense, the faithful Jew knew that time was lacking fullness, but that fullness was on its way somehow. But without going into too much detail, when you hear the expression, the fullness of time, you can immediately tell that it is pregnant with meaning. Pregnant with meaning. Have you noticed that? The fullness of time sounds big, it sounds consequential, it sounds climactic. It immediately lets you know that up until that point, up until the fullness of time, history was not aimless. History, we could say, in fact, human history was made for its fullness. It was made for the fullness of time, which opens up another truth right before our eyes, which is our next truth. The fullness of time speaks not only of Jewish, Jewish expectation, but also speaks of divine decree. Divine decree. Not only does the expression, the fullness of time, reveal the Jewish view of history as linear rather than cyclical, being always full of expectation, but more importantly, it reveals something about the nature of God's sovereignty over history. Unlike the pagan nations surrounding Paul and the infant church, Christians believed that there is only one true God who is always in charge of time. Always in charge of time. Christmas is one of the greatest demonstrations of this truth. This truth. It happened as Paul described in verses 1, 2, and 3 of Galatians chapter 4. Please look at them with me. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. After I read them, I'll make a few comments. Paul said this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the, debt, the date set by his father. This is a very loaded passage, which we will unpack later on. For now, let me just highlight the following. When Paul talks about a child being under guardians and managers, he's using that as an analogy for Israel and their relationship to the law, as well as the Gentiles and their relationship to the elementary principles of this world, which he mentions in verse 3. In other words, he's offering these words as a summary of all human history up until that point, up until the fullness of time. But notice when the change happened. In the words of Paul, at the end of verse 2, 
but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. For his original audience, this would have made perfect sense. If you are a child, you may be an heir to a great inheritance, but you can't do anything about it until your father says so. All the riches are in his hands, and they only become yours when the father determines. Likewise, but in a cosmic sense, God also established a time in which his riches would be set loose upon the world. Or let me put it like this. God in his sovereign will and plan established a time in which his relationship with humanity. Listen to this. God established a time in time in which his relationship with humanity would dramatically change in the sense that his divine riches would now be fully available to not only Israel but to the whole world. And who set that time? Who determined that time? Well, God himself, what alternative is there? There is no alternative. You see, human history is not doing whatever it wants. Human history is doing whatever God wants it to do. He is leading it. He is leading human history to a glorious end. The fullness of time also and almost simultaneously indicates God's loving involvement in human history. He is not the God of the deists who created the world and then forgot about the world. No, God is the God of human history in the sense that he created it, he directs it, and he blesses it. He destined human history for glory. Can you, can you imagine that, that thought? He destined human history for glory. How? How did he do this? Well, by putting his own son right at the center of all of it. By putting his own son right at the center of all of it, which is our next point. And I will keep this, this one very brief as we will develop it next, next week. The fullness of time speaks of Christ-centered history. The fullness of time speaks of Christ-centered history. The fullness of time is history ascending toward its divinely ordained end, which was the entrance of something new into the world. I'm going to repeat that. The fullness of time is history ascending toward its divinely ordained end, which was the entrance of someone new into this world. Christmas is the climax of human history because Jesus is the center of God's plan for the whole world. Jesus is the focal point of all of history, not just religious history, but all of history. In other words, this fullness of time is not a narrow fullness limited only to the life of the Jews, it is a fullness expanded to the life of the entire world. It is of worldwide significance. Why? What's so special about Jesus? We will explore that specific question in the next two sermons. For now, let me just connect this Christocentric nature of human history to our next point. The fullness of time speaks of covenantal faithfulness. The fullness of time speaks of covenantal faithfulness. We were singing about that just a few moments ago. 
great is God's faithfulness. The fullness of time is not just a random time or a random intervention of God in time. The fullness of time has nothing to do with randomness and everything to do with faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his ancient promises. The fullness of time has the idea of time being a sequence of events which have now gathered or accumulated to the point of completion. The water had been getting increasingly warm. Now it had reached its boiling temperature. I know this because when Paul said fullness of time, Paul could have chosen the Greek word kairos when he spoke of time, which has the idea of a momentary sudden action. Instead, Paul used the word chronos. Chronos, sound familiar? From which we get the word chronology. And chronology has the idea of a sequence. A sequence leading up to something is not sudden. It is a sequence leading up to something. And that's what Paul had in mind here. The fullness of time was not a sudden intervention, but the completion of God's covenantal faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? A better question would be faithfulness to whom? To Abraham. Faithfulness to Abraham. The fullness of time was the time of fulfillment. And what God had promised Abraham, God was now bringing to completion. What exactly did God promise Abraham? If you are in Galatians, turn to chapter 3, verse 8, and you will find the following words. I love this passage. It reveals so much. Galatians 3, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the, the, who? the Gentiles by faith, preached the what? The gospel. I, I always find it so interesting that Paul said that. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, here's how he defined the gospel here. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Notice what Paul calls it, the gospel. From this, we can understand that the fullness of time is the time of worldwide blessing. That's the fullness of time. In connection to this, let me ask you this. Why is it that Paul had to confront Peter in the book of Galatians? In case you don't remember, look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Now, keep in mind how the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed, right? But remember why Paul had to confront Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. But when Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Oh, this, is, this is strong language here. Why did Paul oppose Peter? Because Peter stood condemned. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was doing what? 
he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was a Jew. Now, before the men from James came, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, the men from James, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. In other words, Peter had forgotten that the fullness of time had come. That's why he separated from the Gentiles. He had forgotten that the fullness of time was here. With the coming of Jesus, you see, the world was a different place. With the coming of Jesus, the world was a different place. How was the world a different place? Well, let me show you. Thanks for asking. Let me show you. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Here's a new world. This is how the world is now a different place with the coming of Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's amazing. That's incredible. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. But you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. The fullness of time meant that the people of God were now a worldwide people. Therefore, when Peter drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What truth of the gospel? The truth promised to Abraham. Peter, you have forgotten that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, are, not, are now justified, redeemed, reconciled by the same Savior. Peter, don't forget that we are now living in the fullness of time. Thus, the fullness of time is not a sudden interruption in human history. Rather, it is the coming of age of history, as it were. With the advent of Jesus, history reached maturity. Now, we could spend months looking at that alone. Prior to the coming of Jesus, the world had been held under what Paul calls the elementary principles of this world, which is a very complex phrase, but it has the idea of immaturity. Prior to the coming of Jesus, the world was immature. Human history was immature. But when the Lord appeared in the flesh, history reached a maturity it hadn't had before because history itself was made for Jesus and the accomplishment of the divine plan centered on Jesus to reach the reach of which was absolutely cosmic. The fullness of time is about the chronological faithfulness of God to everything he has said to the patriarchs and through the prophets. So let me see if I can now begin to bring this sermon to an initial conclusion by drawing your attention to the last point, the last point. And I hope all the sermons will be connected as we are starting, studying this, this one passage. With, with everything we have said so far, it becomes clear, here's the last point, that the fullness of time speaks of new beginnings. The fullness of time speaks of new beginnings. The almost inescapable conclusion to which we must all come 
is that the fullness of time is the beginning of something new. Is the beginning of something new. What was the passage that you, you quoted during the... I'm not going to put you on the spot, but that will be difficult to remember. Uh, I believe it was in Ephesians chapter 1. And it looks... Let me see if I can find it. In Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is praying. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for, again, the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We're going to enter into that passage in the weeks to come. But that sounds very big, doesn't it? In the fullness of time to do what? Unite all things, things in heaven and in him. The fullness of time, it's a big, big expression. Something new has come. Not only new for human history in general, but also for individual lives in particular. The two being intimately connected, of course. You can't have human history without individual humans living their lives within that history. But the newness brought about by the fullness of time reached very, very deeply. This was certainly the case for Paul, formerly known as Saul. Saul of Tarsus had been a man who had thought he had reached many climaxes in his own life. Paul had identified certain peaks or summits that defined him, that provide him with identity. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those things for him were the climaxes. His entire life was built upon those summits. He had a highly impressive credential. And yet, he's also the one who later on in his life came to count everything as what? Loss. Interesting. All those high peaks and summits, important things in his life, he came to count as loss. All those high credentials, those climactic realities of his life became like nothing to him. They lost all their value because... He came to understand himself to be living in the fullness of time. How? Here's how. In his own words, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul became a participant, a beneficiary of the fullness of time. Therefore, his life was deeply transformed. The new had come. Do you realize that part of what the New Testament writers were seeking to convey to believers in the first century is that they were now living in a fullness of time world and that therefore their lives were meant to reflect this? Think about it. If history was made for the fullness of time, which is the coming of Jesus, and you belong to human history, then what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? Well, it means you, individually, were also made for the Lord Jesus. It means, as it does for all of human history, that knowing Jesus 
is also the climax of your life. Knowing Jesus is the climax of your individual life. It is the peak. All other things in your life, however important, are only secondary to knowing Jesus. In other words, if you know Jesus through faith, then welcome to the fullness of time. This is Christmas, the very climax of human history. And through faith in the Messiah, you and I get to participate in this fullness. So no, your life is not empty, vain, or void of meaning. It can never be. The fullness of time has come. But this creates another question, doesn't it? And with this question, we will finish our time together. And here's the final question, which will prepare the way for next Sunday. What did the fullness of time bring? What did the fullness of time bring? The fullness of time was the climax of history for a central reason. And I want to ask you to go in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. The fullness of time was the climax of history for a central reason, and we find this reason in connection with the central Jewish expectation. So let us finish by considering the words found in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. If the Jews had one main expectation, it was expressed in these simple yet profound words. Here's what the Jews really, really wanted. In a prayer reflecting the heart of Israel, Isaiah said to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The fullness of time came when this prayer was answered. But we will see this next Sunday. In the meantime, let us pray. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the fullness of time. We thank you that we are living now in a world in which we can have the assurance that time and history, our own individual lives and the history of the world, all of it is not moving aimlessly, but it is all made for a purpose. And so I pray that you will help us to align our thinking to this reality. That whatever the circumstances may be, both individually for us, as families, as communities, and for the whole world, all of it is happening in light of the fullness of time. And that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. So thank you, Father, for giving us a sense of deep, deep purpose, for reminding us this morning that you have created the world and history and our own lives for the glory of Christ Jesus. And that if we believe in him, we are to join you in living according to the fullness of time, which has already come. And so thank you for this hope Thank you for this comfort that we have received. 
through the preaching of your word and help us to continue to live according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.